My name is Laurens Jacht. And welcome to Cybersecurity Talks, the interview podcast for cybersecurity professionals and for those who aspire to become one. And in this podcast, I interview industry experts and explore what it's like to work in the cybersecurity domain. Join us on our journey and learn about the latest trends, real-life war stories, and everything you need to know about this fascinating industry. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Cybersecurity Talks. We're very excited to announce today's guest, Manuel Garat. Manuel is the Global Head of Identity Access Management at Booking.com. As you might understand when I pronounce his name, he's not a Dutchie, he's Spanish. Manuel, mucho gusto. Thank you for having me. Uh, after your graduation for your bachelor's in computer engineering and master in information security, uh, you became a software developer for about 10 years. And afterwards, you also started your own company for a little bit. And then uh, at a certain point, Manuel decided to rejoin the corporate world as a product owner. In 2018, he relocated to the Netherlands to join Booking.com. He first became an identity product management or product owner, and, and later on became a cybersecurity product owner. And in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, he became the global head of identity access management at Booking.com. Very impressive, Manuel. Thank you very much. Cool career. Accurate. Thank you very much. Uh, we always start the, the, the podcast with uh, some quick questions. So I want to jump right into it. And um, here we go. What you need to know about me. What meal do you start your day with? What meal? So it's typically uh, toast with butter and milk. Nice. Android or iOS? Um, it used to be iOS. Now I'm Android. Ah, you don't see that a lot of people that switch. No, I actually wanted to switch to be able to understand both domains. Uh, and I stayed with Android because it's simply more open. Okay. What's your favorite phone app? Phone app? Uh, Google Calendar. <laughs> okay. Work from home, office, or a mix? Uh, for myself, I would say from home. For everyone I work with, I would say freedom is is the keyword. I, I want people to be able to choose. Nice. Yep. Are you a gamer? No, I'm not. Laptop, desktop, server, or VM? Uh, laptop nowadays. What's a guilty pleasure of yours? Well, I, don't, I don't know if I would say guilty, but singing. <laughs> nice. Uh, cloud or on-prem? Um, cloud. First word that comes to mind when I say cybersecurity? Awareness. And your password is? <laughs> I have 90. <laughs> I have 90. And random. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I couldn't tell you even one. <laughs> this is a public service announcement. Do you want to work with the next generation of cybersecurity professionals? Or do you want to start a career in cybersecurity yourself? Then join us, because we're on a mission to close the cybersecurity talent gap. We started a new educational company called The Guardianship. Here we train digital talent to become the next generation of cybersecurity professionals. For more information, go to theguardianship.nl. That is theguardianship.nl. Now let's get back to the episode. The beginnings. Uh, the first thing I read when I did my research, um, I, I noticed that you are really passionate about three things, and that's software development, uh, agility, and cybersecurity. Can you elaborate a little bit on those uh, three? Absolutely. And that's a little bit a chronology of my, my career. So I started as a, as a software developer, and that's what I 100% knew I was going to do, right? So I started coding, developing, and I didn't know anything about um, agility. And I couldn't, couldn't 
uh, even suspect that I would end up with cybersecurity. But I, I did software developing for about 10 years. And I say about 10 years because that's when I was working as a software developer. I haven't really stopped. Um, and, and it's something that really, really shaped my mind in, in how to solve problems the right way, right? And I'm not even talking only about software development problems, but problems in general. I, I tend to look at, okay, how we, can we decouple problems? How can we layer things properly and, and make it more generic? And, and it applies a little bit to everything, right? My wife goes crazy with that. <laughs> um, and then... Um, I discovered, I started to work as a developer as part of Agile teams and Scrum and so on. And I became, became really interested with that. So I started training um, to, to become a product owner. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up uh, moving from, from the technical software developer to the technical product owner. Um, and uh, uh, it's actually a funny uh, story of how I entered the the cybersecurity domain, but I ended up there as a product owner, and then um, eventually I I I I always saw myself as an intruder, and um, uh, in the end uh, it surrounded me, and I'm there like for the whole long haul, right? But um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, something that is the more recent part of my story, but it's definitely the the analysis, chronological analysis of, of what I do. Yeah. yeah. No, because I, I, I noticed you uh, you graduated uh, in Spain, and uh, I think in, in Madrid, if, if I'm correct. And shortly after you joined uh, a company as a software developer. Yep. But what was so appealing for you for, from the software development side? Because you've been in it for, for a long time, and I, I, I have a feeling you still like to solve these puzzles. But oh, yeah. what, what makes it so, uh, so sexy to work as a software developer? So for me, the amazing thing as a software developer is, and, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, but it's a really, for me, a really intimate exercise because you, you close yourself on a problem and you get to know that problem at such a low level of, uh, because in the end, it's like, why isn't this working? And, and at some point after a couple of hours of investigating, you realize that actually after the hundredth iteration, the value of the variable is negative, blah, blah, blah. It's like... How, how many hours do you have to spend to get to know the problem at that level? And for me, the, the feeling of satisfaction of identifying what the problems are uh, and try uh, managing, achieving that level of understanding. And second, uh, devising a solution that won't only solve that problem, but will be scalable in, uh, as, as the problem grows and, and changes, shifts. Um, that's one of the most rewarding things uh, I can think of when when you actually see well actually now the problem is way different and you go well yeah but the solution still still uh, solves it um, so yeah that that's that was has always been for me amazing and I have to say moving away from the pure development um, on one side is super rewarding because it allows you to think of bigger problems and and bigger solutions but at the same time. Um, it's a little bit sad that you cannot get to work at that level anymore. Yeah. No, but I, I can imagine with software development, as you explain it, you're working on a very small, intense puzzle. But because it's software, it's so scalable, and, and therefore the, the, the impact you can have is actually huge. Yeah, yeah that's a nice combination. No, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. 
but eventually you uh, decide to go on, on a different journey. Uh, you started your own business uh, called Court, if I announced yeah. it uh, correctly. What was the uh, idea ar around it? So the idea with Quart, um I've always been really, really passionate about history, studying history and, and reading history for fun or whatever. And I realized for someone like me without without a great, um, I would say, um, uh, graphical mindset of uh, understanding space properly. Um, I, I couldn't I couldn't study history without that that uh, spatial representation in front of me. So I started thinking, well, the, the proper way to do this would be to have a map like Google Maps, have a timeline and be able to move either in, in space or in time and see things popping up and, and down, right? And seeing, for example, the, the Roman Empire expanding and fragmenting yeah. and, and then different different uh, uh, peoples and different wars and different how everything evolves. And even um, diving not only in the geographical dimension and the time dimension, but also in the uh, theme dimension. So now I'm, I'm only interested in sports, actually. So I'm going to filter out everything except sports. And now I do the same thing and I go through the story of the, the history of, of uh, the Olympics, for example, or the World Cups. And you see that right in the map. Um, so for me, it was it was a dream and it was amazing. And uh, and I think everyone who saw it come to life was was really, really excited about the prospect. I always say that it was a success in everything except the financials because it didn't <laughs> never make uh, a single a single dime. But it it did allow me to learn a lot about how, especially how not to do things, right? About uh, so my my application had no users, and it was from a technical perspective um, very very close to perfect in 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 a lot of domains. Uh, in the security uh, domain, for example, and in, in data management and performance, it was really, really impressive. And um, on people, especially technical people, and they hear this like, that, that's amazing. And thinking, well, that's actually my main failure. The fact that I could not, at that point in time, understand that an MVP is not, it's not what you can do because you don't have the time, but what you are required not to do to to maximize um, the growth in other areas. And that's not what I did. I, I needed to have a perfect solution. Even if, if it didn't have all of the features, but the features it did have needed to be perfect and they did not need to be. And, um, but yeah, it was a, a, year of, a year that I took off to do that. And I, again, learned a lot. And, and among other things, I learned uh, product management. And I got certified as product owner. Um, and uh, after all was said and done, I I rejoined uh, my previous company as a, a product owner in the uh, identity and access management space. Yeah. No, but I think it's good to have that entrepreneurial uh, experience and you never know what, what comes next. But if, uh, I think you rejoined the corporate world then uh, after a year, a year and a half and at Rayout again. But in 2018, uh, you, you decide to uh, join Booking.com right. here in Amsterdam. Yeah. 
so you also had to relocate and uh, uh, bring the, the family along. How how was that? Was it in a difficult decision? So it was a it was a really difficult decision for for several reasons. First of all, because um, it was scary. Because as I was telling you, I, I never saw myself as part of the um, of the cybersecurity domain. Um, I saw myself a little bit of, of an imposter, and uh, I was going to a to a company that had a very impressive um, cybersecurity team. And uh, on one side, I was thinking, "What am I doing?" Uh, because so my my story of how I I, I joined cybersecurity is crazy. Is I, I was a developer. And I was working as a developer. And uh, even before I started working as a developer in identity and access management, um, one day my my wife calls me and he tells me, and she tells me, my my sister, she she's a, a lawyer, my sister-in-law, uh, she tells me my sister is starting a master's in um cybersecurity audit. Um, and uh, law of, of IT, basically. Um, and it's 50% technical, 50% non-technical, business-oriented, right? And they're starting with the technical, and she is understanding nothing. Could you go over and explain it to her? I was like, sure, sure, I'll do that. I went there, and we spent a whole afternoon talking about the, the topic, and I started going through the materials, through all the, 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 the curriculum. And I really, really liked it. It's like, well, this is actually really interesting masters. And I had been thinking, well, I probably want to do something like that. And um, I went home and I told my wife, I think I'm going to do it with her. She was like, great, she'll have more help then. And and that's what I started. Uh, I started like that. I, I I completed that, and once my company saw, well, actually, you've done this in, in the cybersecurity domain, information security, and so on, um, let's move you to the IAM team as a developer. And then the rest and shoot. Uh, I, I quit, came back as a product owner, and after a year, booking the com called. And I was thinking, I'm not cybersecurity. Those people are like really impressive. I, I, I cannot survive there. Um, and of course, the other part was relocating to a new city and, and to a new country and so on. And it was a week which was pure agony because we, we, would, we would wake up in the morning saying, yeah, absolutely not. We are not moving to another country. Absolutely not. And in the evening, we're like, absolutely, yes, we're doing this. And after a week, we make the decision. And it was scary. I relocated here. A month after, I was like, this is the best decision I've ever done. And a year after, I was actually thinking of myself as part of the cybersecurity team. It's like how much I grew in a year and how much I've grown in the three years after. Um, and suddenly seeing yourself as a subject matter expert in, in that topic and uh, feeling comfortable in that domain, that was impressive. That, that, was, that was something I honestly didn't expect. The art of access management. And uh, you also mentioned that a company that takes it very serious. I, I did some research, of course, and Booking is, is one of the biggest companies in the world by mm. now. And they take security very serious, but also that they are a company that's been targeted a lot by, by a lot of different uh, people across the world. Why do you think that's the case? 
Well, it's it's twofold, right? So on one side, we have um, a lot of financial activity, right? So there's the, it's attractive to try and, and, and get a piece of the pie, let's say, in a fraudulent way. Um, but on the other side, we have a lot of information, and it's sensitive information because it's where people are, where they where they stay, and these type of things. So attackers are basically going to go for one or the other. I want money or I want information, um, and and booking has both. So I think that's probably the reason, um, and that's also the, the reason why booking takes it seriously, right? And it's a, an impressive uh, cybersecurity department. And uh, and leaders really believe in in doing the right thing and putting the right means uh, in place. So yeah, I think that's that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just realized this again. Known where people are at. So say I'm I'm gonna be in Norway for a month. That can also be very interesting information for people with with bad ideas, of course. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I never thought about it that way, but that's uh, the other side of the coin. Yeah, interesting. When speaking about identity access management, uh, can you explain real briefly uh, what what is the concept? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So identity and access management is basically the domain that um, is looking at understanding who your players, your users are, um, making sure that they are who they say they are and at request time. So that would be authentication and uh, making sure they're allowed to do what they want to do and nothing else, that would be authorization. So um, that's where we say identity management, authentication and authorization, which, we, which would be access management, if you will. Um, and then uh, depending on the environment where you're playing, um, you have a lot of governance on top of it. You have compliance, uh, you have regulations that you have to adhere by and you have audits to make sure that you are. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, a little bit an, an added uh, nuisance on top of it, because if you are in a regulated market, you have to to properly do all that. My point of view is you have to do it anyway, but of course it's a it's a risk based decision. Um, but uh, in general, it's those three concepts: identity management, uh, authentication, and authorization. You can think of ident identity management as uh, from my domain is the corporate domain, so so basically employees, right? So if you are hired as a, as a user, sorry, if you're hired as an employee, um, there has to be a, a life cycle. That means the, the moment your contract starts, that triggers the creation of an account for you. And that triggers the provisioning of your account in multiple systems that you require in order to do your job. And there has to be a system that actually determines which systems you need in order to do your, do your job. And not only provisioning the accounts, but actually uh, provisioning the access levels that you need in order to do your job. And also um, allow you to move within the organization. So let's say you're promoted or you move to a different position in the organization, automatically you need to get access, lose access. And then the more, the more critical thing is the moment you leave the organization, automatically we need to remove that access, deprovision access, and 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 remove those accounts so that you or someone else cannot exploit them after the fact. Now, you would you would be surprised how many organizations don't have a proper process for this, or they are very manual processes, meaning 
um, okay, when once you leave, I will remember to to remove your account. Well, what what if you don't? And uh, are you aware of everything you need to remove? Because it's not one account. He has actually uh, several systems where you need to remove the account manually. Uh, so so it is it is taking care of that properly so that you or anyone else cannot exploit that access that has been given to you for a business reason. And also making sure that no additional access than the access you need is given to you. Yeah. What a beautiful description. It's, it's very clear. And and uh, if you look at, at Booking's case, um, what, are, what are the main struggles then? Uh, could it be that, that people still have access but no longer work there and people uh, try to copy their identity and then find access in the system? No, I would say that the struggle with Booking is the struggle with any large organization. And Booking is a, a company that is doing that really well. Mm, it's even if it's uh, <laughs> in part because I'm there, but uh, large organizations, tra- well, organizations traditionally, uh, the way they manage taxes. Let, let's look at a scenario where you start a company with five friends, and it's six people. So managing access is really simple. It's even if you are obsessed with doing things properly, you are going to realize, well, how many how many entitlements do we have? How many permissions? Well, we have 20. Okay, fine. So we are going to have a list for each of those entitlements and we're going to say who of us six can do which of those. And it's going to be manageable. And you're going to have, uh, that's what we call ACL, access control list. Uh, Each permission has that list and it's manageable. But then you have a lot of success and it starts growing and growing and growing. And suddenly you have not 20, but 200 entitlements and uh, not six potential users, but but let's say 100. Yeah. Now, it's absolutely crazy and you cannot manage it that way because you, you are going to have uh, people getting more access than they need. And uh, and even even if, if you don't, the the operational overhead, the management of maintaining uh, those access control lists is nuts. So you're going to decide to go to what we call role-based access control. You're going to define roles uh, based on a bunch of things, basically the the, the mm, position that the user is playing within, within the organization, the business, and so on. And you're going to create those roles. Those roles are going to have already a description, a set of entitlements that you get if you are part of that role. And you are going to simply say, okay, you get this role, you get this role, you get this role. And now it's, again, manageable because, yeah, you you will have one role or, or a couple or three and that's it. So it's sort of Five. a pre-packed exactly. uh, access you have. Yeah. Predefined, yeah. let's say, uh, permission profile. Yeah. And that's fine until you don't have 100 uh, members and 200 entitlements, but you have let's say 20,000 entitlements and, and and people might go, well, what do you mean 20,000? Well, the moment you have a, a large set of databases and services and so on, 20,000 is a joke. You, you will definitely go beyond that. And you have 20,000 employees. Roles is a nightmare 
at that point. Role-based access control will not work. It's not manageable. It, you, you run into what we call an explosion of roles. Yeah. Because now let's say you have, well, we have a role for developer. And developer has this, let's say, 150 permissions that you need, including databases and so on. And now you have someone from the legal department saying, hey, 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 not all developers should be having this because this is only for people in the security department and junior developers should not have access to X, Y. So we start, okay, let's start splitting roles. Junior developer, senior developer, security developer, marketing developer, and you end up with uh, senior security developer number three. It's like, what is that? We don't. And, and the problem is people will tell you, we don't know. It was created like two years ago, but now it has five users, but we don't really know if they should be there. It's impossible. It's it's crazy. It's nuts. And And that's the challenge with large and dynamic organizations. You believe you can create that bottleneck, which is the role creation, and it's fine while they are very static and well-controlled, the moment it explodes, it's it's uh, it's crazy, and that's when you run into the the next generation access control models, like for example, policy based access control, attribute based access control, where you actually give the power to the owner of the resource, and there is no role. So, for example, you are the owner of a database, you're the data owner, and you have an entitlement to access your database. And now we give you a platform or a mechanism to define a criteria, which is, well, if you're a developer and are in this in this department, or if you are junior and blah, blah, blah. blah. So you actually create a, a sequence and a dependency of conditions. And that is evaluated real time when the user tries to access. And the moment I'm not a developer anymore because I was promoted to whatever, suddenly I don't have access anymore. And, and that's that's where the maturity in identity and access, well, in access management lies with, is, is being able to leverage the information that the organization already knows about employees and users in order to limit access to what we call list privilege. So the minimum set of permissions you must have in order to do your job and nothing else. It's very interesting. I, I was just thinking when you said sort of the N or scenarios, that's very small, you can do it in a, in an Excel uh, or sort of a type form. So if yep. it's a yes, you go to that field and then you have another yes, no. Correct. But on this scale with so many employees and so many systems, uh, I see you smiling, I'm also smiling. But for me, this would be such a puzzle that I, I would go crazy uh, with, with 10 people. But, I would already be, it's too complicated for me. Yeah, I'm out. But, but it is it is true to some extent. But keep in mind, it would be nuts if you had one centralized team trying to define those rules. But if you are giving the power to the owners of the resources, you're basically saying people defining these conditions are embedded and distributed throughout your organization. And now what they're going to do is, well, some people are going to create extremely basic uh, rules. It's going to be a rule of the type if you are in marketing, period. So if the user's department is marketing, you get access. But some others are going to say, well, actually my conditions are not so straightforward. No problem. You can still do it. But you need to understand that logic. And that is one of the huge benefits of this type of approach. Um, traditional cases, traditional methods allow the owners um to to uh 
decline responsibility and decline real ownership. So you go to a database owner and say, hey, who should have access to your to your database? And they're like, I don't, I don't really know. There's a permission there, but there are some roles. I don't really, I don't know. Okay, fine. Now I'm going to give you that responsibility. And you, yeah, it's going to be painful for for the, the initial minutes. But after a couple of days, I'm going to go to you and say, hey, do you know who has access to your resource that you own? And they will go like, now I know. And I actually feel much more confident and comfortable that if I am sitting with audit and they say, prove to me, I'm going to say, I can prove it. I can prove it because I know, because I am the owner, I control. And that's that's what we want. We want people, and that's the, actually the whole point of a mature uh, security organization, I would say, is to make sure that you don't have two, three, even 300 policemen uh, trying to make sure that everyone is abiding by the rules, but actually that you trans uh, you, you translate and you you push that responsibility to the uh, relevant people and the the accountability to to that people, and they can confidently say, "Yeah, I'm, I know the risks. I know uh, what I what I want to allow and what I want what I not what I don't want to allow." And, and that's what I'm doing. And I'm confident that it's being done, right? Yeah. And is your team then responsible for helping the the, the people that are accountable, say the, the product owners or the data owners, your team helps them to align those values and say, okay, we will help you set up who can get access and who doesn't get access. Because maybe somebody from the marketing team right. might think, yeah, okay, that, that's nice, but uh, I, I have 300 people, uh, how am I ever going to do this? Yeah. So what we do is uh, we provide a set of services, uh, including technical tools and uh, and uh, also let's say operational services, uh, consultancy, and and advising and so on. Um, but but one of the things we do is is try to make those tools usable by anyone, even if they don't have a technical background. And we are getting there. Where, where someone who's a communications expert, they come to us and they say, okay, so I'm super scared because I have this permission, but I, I need to make sure that anyone in this department is allowed. And we show them how it works. And the, the, the answer is, oh, okay. So all I have to do is add codes for additional departments that I want to, uh, to allow here. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. Okay, now from now on, I don't need you. That's what we want. Yeah. Of course, the other part that my team does is it's it's, monitoring so we want to make sure that that person didn't go crazy afterwards and suddenly uh, it's it's not really that they don't go crazy because they are the owners if they say everyone in the company should ha be having access to this we are nobody to challenge that but what we want to make sure is that if they gave access to everybody in the company that's what they intended that's the, what they wanted to do we will go back and say hey our alerts that we set up for monitoring tell us you've given this to a huge amount of people. Is that what you wanted to do? Yes, because blah blah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you 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 do the monitoring and you you set the alerts because a lot of it is of course also uh, it could be malicious activity from the people inside the company. Correct. So, so that they uh, they might leave in two weeks and all of a sudden they give access to everybody in the company. And then you have created a system that triggers Correct. the alarm. Correct. There's 
So it's I would say it's those two things: it's creating the services and monitoring, right? And uh, the the whole point here is is precisely uh, making sure that our internal employees are doing the right thing. Sometimes it's malicious; more often than not, it's not. Uh, but it's simply an oversight and and not really uh, having due care. And um, and uh, what we do, for example, in the case while well, someone leaves the organization, okay, we, we need to have a, um, a handover in terms of ownership. So uh, before you go, you need to appoint a new owner and the new owner needs to agree and needs to be trained and needs to understand what is there and how to manage it. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, that's basically basically the thing. Yeah, and if something would happen, say say I find my way into the organization via uh, an, an identity I, I duplicated, is then the 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 data owner is is that also somebody that you would then go to like hey how could have this has happened because then that person might feel the accountability, what can also be frightening. Yeah, correct, but 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 it is. So if you are the data owner and someone is getting access to your data, you're going to have to do three things. First, you're going to have to explicitly allow them to get access to your data. Second, you're, you're going to have to re-acknowledge in, in um, recurring reviews, right? So, I don't know, maybe every six months, you have to look at the list of people who have access to your resource and you have to say yes. Um, and, and finally, you need to own uh that list so when there's an audit review or whatever risk and, and and compliance risk control they come to to ask questions they are not going to ask us we are going to explain to them how the tools work we're going to explain to them how the processes work but if they have a questions about okay but how why does this person have access to this database here's the owner and 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 they have the answer they need to have the answer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The fake CV. Yeah, it's fascinating because during the, the, the podcasts I, I had so far, it was always looking externally. So what's the trend, uh, the trend landscape outside? But of, of course, internally with the company this size, you, you need to have so many procedures in place as well and also yeah. look internally what, what can be the damage be from inside. Yeah, and, and, and this is only going to... I mean, one of, one of the things that I'm obsessed about now is, um, so let's look at the after pandemic situation. We we have, well, every organization has been hiring and not always locally. It's not always available locally. Even if you want to, to relocate somebody from, let's say, Singapore to Amsterdam, it was very common that for a long time they couldn't they couldn't travel so you hire them there and they or or maybe you're starting to hire remote and and then you will never see that person at the office so um suddenly i start thinking okay what happens if now that that we don't need that personal interaction it's easier to trick my organization um let's say i open a position for a site reliability engineer and a hacker goes, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create um, 150 different fake CVs, fake personas. I'm going to go through the process with all of them. I, I read today an article about people who are doing interviews with deep fake already. Oh, wow. Video interviews via, via 
deepfake. And I, I'm going to get hired. And once I get hired, they are going to give me the permissions I want to hack you. So, so now the question is, okay, so what are, we, what are we doing to prevent that? In fact, what were we doing before the pandemic to prevent that? So if someone came to my office, I mean, I hired them, they came in, what assurance do I have that they are who they say they are, not a hacker? And immediately someone says, yeah, but they, they have to give us a copy of their passport or national ID or whatever. Okay, what experts do you have in your organization which, who are capable of identifying a fake passport from India 1987? None, right? So um, the, the reality is we were doing nothing. We were basically saying, well, I mean, I don't think this person is lying to my face. Well, someone would. And the reality is probably they they did much less than than it will happen because the personal the, the the being in person there is a big big block also for for the attacker but if now you don't need that and there are a lot of companies saying hey we're going full remote um okay you are going to you are going to start seeing a lot of those type of attacks simply because it's now much easier so now you have to start thinking, how do I validate the identity of the person I just hired that I'm never going to see face-to-face? -face? Because What's that solution? person is going to be in and is going to be able to attack me. Yeah, so they socially engineer themselves into the organization. Yeah. So it's sort of an espionage then, in a way. You don't know who's, who's entering the, the company. Correct. It's already happening, and it's, I think it, we're going to see more and more and more because we, it's become really cheap to do. So, so now, basically, the same way you have your KYC, you know, your customer uh, strategies with, with a lot of organizations, especially fintech and, and, and banks and so on, um, you're going to see the same KYE, you know, your employee for, for companies, where I have to be able to build a trust anchor to say, well, the what I know for sure is you are this person. That's what I know for sure. And now we can build from that. Yeah. And and what's the solution? Say, say there's a person from Singapore that, that seems really good and, and uh, has all the right qualifications because yeah. otherwise they wouldn't make it true. Yeah. But how do you then uh, see the identity? Because what's the solution for so it? So traditional, well, traditional. It's not traditional at all, but, but I mean, the, the KYC solutions that we see that we are already starting to see in, in uh, from a corporate perspective. Um, there are solutions where you basically upload your, your uh, password, driving license, and they do recognize, they are capable of catching, um, that it's a valid ID. So they do, they are capable of saying, well, this is a driving license from this region of China. And and from this year, I understand the typography, the shadow, the, the, the and they are capable of saying, this is a valid ID. Okay, first thing. Second thing, capture a video, video uh, mm, uh, selfie, say these words, mm, look to the left, look up, and so on. And we are capable of identifying this is not deepfake, and it's the same person as the ID. So, okay, you are already in a very, very good position because now you know this, I mean, unless the hacker said, well, it is my real, I'm going to give you my real idea, my real name, and then yeah. it's actually the hacker applying for a job, right? <laughs> um, 
but but yeah, that that that's basically where we um, we are capable of of validating the identity, and from that point forward, it's it's the same thing as we thought we had before, which we didn't. Yeah, but uh, it it for the outsider, it, it seems almost so far fetched. But I think a lot of companies nowadays have to have this struggle because otherwise uh, this would not have been thought of. So right. of of course somebody got their way in and. Now this is the solution to to prevent that in the future. Yeah, definitely. But it, it's uh, it's and, wonderful how the hacker is also so creative in that sense yeah, and take yeah. the risks in a way what, you also that you can say for them <laughs> they're creative for sure. Yeah. yeah. Cybersecurity as an enabler. But I, I can relate with what you're saying. Perhaps you, sometimes you feel like the yeah in, internal police force. That you have to set the the rules, literally yeah. the, the role based access, but that comes from from your team. Yeah, I, I always say that it's it's cybersecurity has traditionally been seen as a blocker. So you come to me with an initiative, super excited, we are going to innovate, this is going to be huge, and we tell you no, you cannot do that. If you do that, we we are all going to jail. Yeah, <laughs> but the reality is, it's important for cybersecurity to become an enabler of the business rather than a blocker. And the difference between being a blocker or an enabler is just how proactive cybersecurity is. If we are reactive, if we are waiting for you to come here and say, this is what I want to do, we are always going to say, no, 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 don't do that, blocker. But if you are proactive, if you say, okay, we need to deliver a set of services, we need to give you tools and by tools, I also mean processes, standards, policies to, to innovate. I don't know exactly what you will want to do in the future, but you need to have the tools to do it. So when, when let's say people come and say, hey, I want to give access to this tool to all of these people. If I've already given you the tools to check for conflicts with other tools and to preventatively block what they should not be able to access and and or to give temporary access for some time so to we diminish the risk, these type of things, um, I can allow you to do it. So I I've become an enabler because I decided to take the proactive approach. And that for me makes all the difference. And and it's what still cybersecurity has a lot of bad press for that reason. Because because we are not always proactive enough to enable you to do what you want to do. So if I say correctly, you sort of define already the playing field. So so if if there is some innovation ongoing, you say okay, you can do whatever you want, but this is the playing field. These are the borders. Make sure you check them before, and not really at the last stage. So that's right. also the the sec develop approach. So. This is a super silly example, but I have a two-year-old daughter, and one of the things she loves to do is she she loves to play with uh, Play-Doh, right? Yep. Yeah. And um, let's say I didn't think about it. I didn't think she would want to play with Play-Doh. So she comes to me. I want to play with this, and I'm I'm say I will say no, no, no. That that's that gets everything super dirty, dirty, and, and the glass and everything. No, no, you cannot play. She's going to be like, but. If I think of it a little bit beforehand, say, okay, when she wants to play, I'm going to have this sheet of paper put in this little table. And when she comes and say, I want to play this, it's like, oh, I've enabled a space for you to do that. Go and do it there. And she's like super happy playing. I took the proactive approach. I've enabled her to do what, what she wanted to do. That's basically it. Yeah. 
That's a nice example. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. I, uh, I, I find it fascinating because it's a very complicated topic. Mm. Um, and I, I was never aware that it's so much internally within the organization. Yeah. But the way you uh, describe it and explain it, it it's, it's, uh, it's simple. So the, thank you for that. What we always ask uh, our guests, if they can send one signal message out to all the CISOs across the world, what would be in that message? Okay, so um, I would say two things. The first thing is um, cybersecurity is something that that requires proper care and proper investment. And you are either going to make the right investment now before something happens or you're going to do it after. So I would say uh, go for it now and, uh, and uh, make sure... It's not it's not a craziness uh, after uh, when when you actually have a problem. Um, so that that would be one. The second is about uh, what I was saying before, making making cybersecurity an enabler for the business rather than a, an, an obstacle, rather than a blocker. And uh, that is something you do by being proactive, but by but also by embedding the cybersecurity concept and function within the business, um, giving people proper awareness trainings, which is something very, very difficult to do be because people don't care about cybersecurity and they are entitled to until you explain to them why they shouldn't, why they should care. Um, and um, But yeah, em embedding that function and, and uh, understanding that everything links with everything. So you cannot do identity and access management without a proper uh, asset inventory and you cannot do uh, data security without identity access management and asset inventory and so you, you need to have those those um, building blocks identified embedded with the business linked to each other that's the very important thing um, get people uh, to understand why this is important and and this comes with the proper investment of course yeah so the two come come yep. together they do amazing Thank you so much, Mano. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Cybersecurity Talks. We hope you've enjoyed this episode with the latest trends, war stories, and exciting career anecdotes. If you enjoyed the show, please review this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Also, could you do me one small favor? Could you please share this podcast with one friend that you think would like this show just as much as you do? Thank you. And for all further information, please go to csrecruitment.nl slash talks and subscribe to this podcast. We will be back with another exciting episode in just two weeks. So see you next time and stay safe.